Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church Podcast. for joining us. Ruth 1, 1 to 5, taken from the New Living Translation. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Oprah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Marlon and Killian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone downstairs in the room. Good morning, upstairs. Good morning, online. Um, it is good to be together. And thank you hugely to Ebba to reading, uh, for reading the scripture to us uh, today. Um, Today does see the start of this new series where we begin looking at this amazing story of Ruth that will lead us up to Christmas, uh, and we'll see how the two connect as we get towards there. But um, before we kind of zoom in on all that Emma's shared, as Ebba's shared, sorry, as before we kind of do that, I want to just take a moment to kind of say, well, why this story then? Why look at this ancient story? Uh, and kind of what is this story all about? Because I think it's important before we jump and zoom in to a part of it, we understand the kind of how it connects as a whole and how it connects to the bigger story of the Bible that always leads us to Jesus. And so firstly, in terms of why this story, I think in this story, in this ancient story, what we're going to discover is it's a story of hope. And I really believe in this moment that we need this. We need hope. I don't think I have to do much to kind of convince you of that. If you just think of the world around us at this point in time, if you think of your newsfeed of just the last 24 hours, if you think about the world that makes up your life, that makes up my life, I, I think actually we're in need of hope. And it feels like lots of different ways that you could find hope keep being revealed as something where hope ultimately can't be found. And therefore, I want us to see that this story is a story of hope. We're going to discover that over the coming weeks. We're going to discover that it's a hope that is revealed that even when we don't see it, God is working. We're going to find that our hope is found in God's faithful, loving kindness and goodness that we are invited to know and show. We're going to see a hope that God brings to the key characters in this story, Ruth and Naomi. And it's a story 
of hope through their rescue. But we're not only going to discover it's a hope to them, it's also a hope that God brings through Ruth and Naomi for all. As through their rescue, it will result in a family line that Jesus will become part of to rescue all through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, we can think we're disconnected to this ancient story, but I want us to see that actually this story not only speaks hope within the characters there, but actually we are now entwined in their story as their stories become our story as it reveals the wonder of the hope that we find in Jesus. And so my prayer is over the coming weeks, we're gonna discover the wonder again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundred thousandth time of wonder of hope that is found in who Jesus is. But before we continue in this, I want us to look at the story of Ruth. And I want us to kind of see the wonder of how this story is made up. Now, I could take some time to do it, but sometimes you just have to point to other people and say, hey, they can do it a little bit better than me. And I'm okay to do that. There's people around who are far greater and better than me at many different things. I'm okay with that. I celebrate in that. I hope you do too. And so therefore, what I want us to do is just quickly watch a video by the Bible Project of Team Mackey and the team who are just going to explain the wonder, intricacy, and beauty of this story of Ruth. So if you can watch that video now. The Book of Ruth, it's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter one opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees, but Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter two begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food. And it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions 
provision so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter three begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter four, it all comes together. It turns out at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter one. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed. And that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story. And that's how little God is mentioned, right? The character talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story. And that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. 
And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. It's good, isn't it? You just think, yeah, yeah, let's let them do that bit. I'll do my bits. Um, can I encourage us? Like, if you want to watch that again, it's on YouTube. I, I always strongly encourage people to get into the Bible Project. They have a podcast as well, which will do you good. But I'm hoping that through this, what we're seeing is this is an ancient yet beautifully crafted story. Uh, and it will do us good. I'd encourage you, if you're in a small group this coming week, read through the story together. There's something that happens when we read scripture together. Like, read through the whole four chapters. It's not that long, but you just find things that strike you as you read it through. But today, I want to zoom in now on those first five verses. I want us to see that this is a story that speaks into our story, that this ancient story is set within a world that's not that dissimilar to the one that we now happen to inhabit. See, this writer kind of starts the story with a punch and rushes through to kind of give a quantity of information in these first five verses that introduces to the key characters, the setting, the backdrop, and just the wonder of what might happen. It's like an opening like no other. It's kind of like, it's no soft opener. It's like a punch in the face. Bang, we're in. And you see, we start with this beginning of a bleak picture. In verse one, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. The narrator wants us to understand the backdrop to this story is a bleak picture. The days of Judges were a dark time, a dark time of civil and political unrest, of economic hardship, of conflict, of the mistreatment of women beyond anything that we could imagine, and the uncertainty in respect to the future. And sometimes we can look back and think, well, wow, that was pretty barbaric, that was pretty dark. And yet, I wonder if it's not that dissimilar to where we live now a place of civil and political unrest, a moment of economic hardship, of conflict, of the mystery of mistreatment of women, of deep uncertainty in respect to future. But it's only told it's a place in the judge's time. We're also told it's a moment of famine, a moment where there's scarcity of food, it seems slightly ironic that we're thousands of years on, 
living in a moment where there's more farming going on and enough food to go around. And yet because of a cost of living crisis, the increased need of people needing to go to food banks and to find food is even there amongst a country like ours where it feels like there's so much. And we can think, oh, no, no, we don't know famine. There's people who are waking up today wondering, I wonder how I'll feed my children today. There's people waking up today thinking, do I decide to go for a long walk so I don't have to stay here feeling hungry? So you can look and say this is an ancient story, but it speaks into our story, a story that's pretty dark, a story of need. But you see, for these ancient hearers, when they heard this story being told, that famine spoke of a couple of other things. You see, famine spoke of potentially a moment of God's judgment. These are God's people. God had said, I'll provide for you, but if you rebel against me, actually you're going to know me withdraw my blessing over you. I already know it's the time of judges where actually God's people weren't being a blessing to other nations. They weren't even being a blessing to each other. And so it's this kind of going on in this, the ancient hearers' minds, thinking, oh, okay, is this a God moment? But there was also a bigger thing that they were thinking. Oh, we've heard these type of stories before. We've heard stories of famine where God suddenly breaks in. This was a moment not only to talk about the hopelessness, it was also to talk about, actually, maybe there's a moment where God is going to act. And then from this bleak picture, the narrator kind of zooms in on a family, a family where it seems like they're seeking to find hope. So we find in verses one to two, it says, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. On first reading, 21st century, hearing it, you're like, he seems like a good guy. He's a good dad. He's like trying to look out for his family. There's scarcity. It's a pretty dark moment. And he thinks, I know, let's leave and go and find some food. That seems pretty good. And yet for these ancient hearers, there were a number of red flags that were coming up as they heard the introduction of this family. See, firstly, it seemed a bit ironic. See, they knew what his name meant. You see, Elimelech, means God is king. Therefore, you're introduced to a guy who's called God is king. In other words, he obviously wants to live with his life, seeking to say, hey, my king is God. And yet he's fleeing the nation where God is king. He's fleeing the nation where God has said, I'm going to call you my own, my people Israel, in order that you would be a blessing to all other nations. And these ancient hearers here, all right, there's this guy called God is king who's running away from the nation where God is king. That's a little ironic, isn't it? We're then told that he's fleeing a particular place. He's fleeing Bethlehem. Now, again, for the ancient hearers, they they don't know what Bethlehem is. You see, Bethlehem means house of bread. There's an irony there. The guy who's about God is king is fleeing the place which is told is the house of bread. 
The place that's all about food. Now, in part, that's to reveal like, hey man, if, if even the house of bread, the place where all the food is, is not scarcity, there's a problem. But more than that, there was like this irony that the narrator's building in, the writer's building in of saying, like, can't you see it? This guy who says God is king is running away from a place that's called the house of bread. But it isn't only irony that's there. It's also for these first hearers. They recognize something about the place that he's running to. It just seems like the wrong place. See, it says that he's going to Moab, and for us, we can think, all right, he's kind of seeking to just go somewhere where there's food, but you've got to understand, for the first hearers, they knew about Moab. You see, at best, the history with the Moabites had been that they were indifferent to the Israelites. At worst, they were actively against them. And therefore, the talk of one who is called God is king, who's fleeing the house of bread, to go to a place where you know people are actively indifferent to you, but probably against you, is just deeply wrong. Why would you go there for hope? So you find that this guy is leading his family to hope in the wrong place. For the first hearers, they would have been thinking that this is a crazy story. This guy's not going to find hope there. He's going to the wrong places. You don't have to carry on, like literally a verse, and you discover, yeah, it is the wrong place. Like fleeing to this place leads quickly to his demise. And several years on, after his sons have married, to their demise as well. And I can look at it and think, whoa, Elimelech, who are you? You're crazy, looking for hope in the wrong places. Here's the uncomfortable truth. I think I'm sometimes more like Elimelech than I want to give credit to. I think sometimes I can seek to find hope in the wrong places. See, it may be in respect to my bank balance. It might be in respect to working harder it all being down to me or thinking myself out of my situation or fantasizing if I had their life, everything would be okay. Or maybe on the really bad days, thinking maybe if I move there, it'll all change. Or if I did that, or if I had that. I wonder if I'm not alone. I wonder if others of us find those moments where you're looking for hope in the wrong place. We see the uncertainty around us. We see the uncertainty that we're feeling. We see the hopelessness and we find ourselves thinking, no, but if I find hope there, it will be okay. And the reality is the only place to find hope is in the God who's king. And the beauty is that the God who's king is full of love and mercy and patiently waits. Patiently waits for us to, us to turn and say, hey, I've got my hope in the wrong place. I need to look to you. Have you got your hope in the wrong place? Are you finding these moments that you wake up thinking through, oh, if, if, I, if that was okay? 
If I, if I had this, what about tomorrow? Are we finding that place of saying, no, my hope is in God, it's in King. God is King. But we continue in the story. See, what we find is this place of looking at hope in the wrong place leads to a hope that's lost. In verse five, it just summarizes, this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. It's pretty bleak. And to be honest, I kind of thought, well, maybe I should end at verse verse six, because it feels like in that point, there's like this hope that they're going back to the place of bread. They're going back to Bethlehem. I just felt, no, I think we should stop here. Because it's this point at the beginning where you feel like in verse one, all right, there's a bleak picture here. By verse five, it's like the lights are turned off. There is no light. You've got a woman in a land that is not her own, with a people who are not her own, who's lost her husband and her two children. And it is dark. Hope's gone. See, the Bible doesn't shy away from those moments. And I think that's good news. Because sometimes it feels like, and it is like, the lights have been turned off. It just feels dark. And the beauty is that in those moments that feel dark, that are dark, God isn't absent from them. God isn't afraid of them. God doesn't want to brush, doesn't want to just brush over them. God comes and meets us in that place. See, Psalm 139 is a writer saying like the wonder of who God is. And in Psalm 139, it says, even the darkest of places, when it feels like we're engulfed in darkness, it's like light to you, God. So even though Naomi didn't know it in this moment, the darkness that she was knowing that she was feeling was like light to God. He could see her. He knew what was going to happen. For some of us here, we know what that feels like. And for you, what I want you to know is God is not distant to you in your darkness. God is very, very present. See, in a moment, we're going to get to share communion. And when we do, what I want us to see is that actually that place of understanding that we know kind of this sense of looking for hope in the wrong places. Actually, communion is the place where we come and say, God, I come back and say, you're king. But it's also the place I want us to see that actually Jesus comes to meet us in our darkness. Because actually in our darkness, it promises there is hope. You see, the narrator gets us to this point of thinking for Naomi, there is no hope. Like, how can anything happen here? She knows the complexities of what it means to be a woman in her situation in this moment. That everything is stacked against her. And yet the narrator is wanting to get to that 
place of not just bleakness, but darkness, in order that the hearers firstly would hear a sense of this is bleak, this is dark, but secondly, start to think through the stories they'd heard before of who God is. Have how it's exactly in the moments where it feels darkest that God breaks in. Story after story, they knew from the history of where it's felt dark and then God broke in. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, our faith is built on a moment of darkness where light suddenly breaks in. The death of Jesus on a cross and then his entering a tomb was the darkest of all dark moments where it felt like, like, hey, surely hope is gone. And yet something was going on that was beyond anything anyone could have imagined that actually out of that darkness, Jesus would rise in order there would be an empty cross and an empty tomb and a resurrected savior for all to rescue everyone. In order that it could be spoken over you and I that however dark it feels, however dark it is, that Jesus' light can break in. But it's also there in this story. See, in this moment of darkness, the writer uses a way to describe Naomi losing her two sons in order that he can reframe it, or she could reframe it by the end as it's unsure as to whether this writer is a man or a woman of Ruth. And so the, the writer there is seeking to reframe the whole story by the end. And it's so well crafted an India writer uh, of a commentary, I'm not going to uh, do him a disservice by trying to pronounce his surname. I know my weaknesses with names, and I know that I will pronounce it really badly. Those of you who will be able to pronounce it can come after me saying you should have said this. But his first name's Havila. He explains in his commentary on Ruth, here the Hebrew note narrator intensifies the pathos, the sadness we would feel of Naomi's loss by referring to the deceased, not with the usual word for sons, Ben in Hebrew, but with a word usually used for children or boys, yelled. There's something in the craftsmanship of this story. The use of these words here, not just sons, but a word that's used of a young boy or children, more commonly used as children. To say, this is a mum who'd lost her children. There's something that's there to pause and think. This is a human story, a human story of loss. But then he continues, when we reach the end of the book, we shall see that this word, yelled, is part of the narrator's reversal scheme. For the two children that Naomi loses here, she will gain two others a baby grandson and Ruth herself, who her neighbors will deem better than seven sons. See, here's what he's saying is the beauty of how this story is written is that the moment that it seems the darkest, there are words crafted here to point us to the end of the story to realize that actually even at the darkest, it's pointing to the moment where light is gonna break out. There's going to be a reverse or reframing of it. It isn't that actually Naomi's going to get a like for like. No, no, God's going to do something way beyond that. 
So he uses these words and says, hey, where there was these two children lost, children gained, a daughter and a grandson. Better than seven sons, something better than what was lost. But it's better because of what that grandson then comes to do. You see, this daughter that she gains is an outsider. And this outsider is going to be used to reframe not just Naomi's story, but all stories forever. You see, Ruth the outsider is going to be used to become part of the lineage to Jesus. Jesus who will come in order to bring all who are outside into the wonder of God's family. And so in this moment, this reframing of however dark it is, light breaks in because in this moment, not only is it about Naomi and Ruth, it's about me and it's about you that Jesus comes to bring hope. See, hope isn't that life goes how we want it to. Hope equals Jesus. It's been a while since I've done an equation in Oasis. I felt like it was time again. Hope equals Jesus. That's what we're going to see time and time again. And it'll feel like a broken record sometimes. Like, oh man, how does that like, help me in this moment? It helps you beyond your wildest dreams. Hope equals Jesus because hope in Jesus promises us that we have a hope that is based in the past. That Jesus has died and has risen. That Jesus has called all to become part of God's family. And as such, it causes us to be characterized by peace, by joy, by love, and knowing that we are now eternally invited into the family of God. Death has lost its sting. It's a hope that's based in the past, but it's a hope that we're to enjoy in the present. See, Jesus promises that he comes to be with us, that we're not alone, that however dark it gets, Jesus is with us and will never forsake us. But here's the really good news. It's not only based in the past, it's not only to be enjoyed in the present, but it's also a hope for the future. See, Jesus gets the final say. Jesus one day will return and he will put everything right. And he will cause this world to be inhabited with heaven in order that God's realm that's full of goodness, love and kindness and mercy will penetrate this realm, this world, in order it will be characterized by goodness, love and mercy. And we will get to enjoy it forever. Jesus gets the final say. However dark it feels at the moment, however dark it is at the moment, Jesus gets the final say. Now we come every Sunday and we gather in this room. If you're in this room, if you're online, you don't get to see this, but the, the kind of big stained glass window behind me is underneath it are two Greek symbols, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And those three letters that they're in the middle is an abbreviation, a way of singling through Jesus. That's what it means. 
you kind of feel like, why do we have to have decipher everything? Um, it'd be easy, wouldn't it, if we just said beginning and Jesus in the middle. It's there that every week we're to come remembering Jesus is the beginning of the story and Jesus is the end of our story. And that breathes hope. It breathes hope that causes us to say, let's not look for it anywhere else because it can only be found in him. Therefore today, do you need hope? Because I promise you, Jesus will not disappoint. Naomi's story was reframed by God because he has the final say. Our stories are reframed by God because Jesus has the final say. And therefore it is only fitting that we end at the table that we end sharing bread and juice where we get to encounter again the risen Jesus who comes and we receive him afresh at the wholeness that he offers you and me through the breaking of the bread, his body broken so we can know wholeness, through the drinking of the cup that promises that now nothing can separate us from the love of God and he will return. And therefore, if you want to receive the hope that is in Jesus, I encourage you, come and take the table. Not literally the whole table, take a cup and take some bread. If you're upstairs, there's bread and juice for you up there. If you're um, wheat intolerant, there's bread for you because Jesus knew about that. But I want to encourage us now, where you are, if you want to take communion, if you want to share communion together, please come. I'm just going to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that we are a people of hope. And Jesus, I pray, would we go enjoying more of that hope found in you? I pray, Jesus, over the coming weeks, would you reveal more of the wonder of your hope that has substance through this amazing story of Ruth. But we pray also we wouldn't be those that just literally hold on to it for ourselves. I pray, would we be liberal in our distribution of hope to all those that we come into contact with? I pray as we leave this building, I pray, would we cause others to come to mind who we're going to go and share this hope with? We ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen.